Welcome to Dig Beneath Design, a podcast where design professionals share how they communicate their work. I'm Sanaya Norton, landscape architect, and after 20 years of practice, I've seen how communication can make or break a project, no matter how great the idea. So I'm going out into the industry to uncover the best design communication strategies and tips to help us be more effective, more articulate designers and get more great ideas off the ground. Nicole Larkin is an architect, artist, and an expert on ocean pools. Her work is mesmerising. You want to dive into her photographs, pour over her meticulous models, and start raving about your favourite pool to anyone who'll listen. But underneath the seductive imagery is a serious purpose, to share knowledge that will help us adapt to climate change, particularly storms and sea level rise, while protecting our beautiful coastline. Nicole has won multiple awards, including a Byra Hadley Travelling Scholarship and Young Australian Designer of the Year. She's currently working with architecture studio MBC and growing her own solo practice to focus on coastal design, planning and policy. We're chatting in Nicole's house two hours south of Sydney, where the Illawarra Escarpment curves close to the coast. It's cold but sunny, and Austinmere Ocean Pool is two minutes away. A swim is definitely on the cards. Find out what it takes to go from recent graduate to respected expert. Ways to supercharge your career and even generate dream projects. And what needs to go up front in your next presentation. Let's get down to the good dirt on Dig Beneath Design. My name's Nicole Larkin. I'm a registered architect practicing in New South Wales. I live down on the south coast in beautiful Austinmere, and I worked for various practices in Sydney. The main one was Zahn's for many years and NBC. I contract for firms and I also work for myself, which I really enjoy because it brings me into contact with different people and get to work with some really amazing architects. My coastal work is predominantly through my own practice and that's come through a whole body of research I've done on ocean pools in New South Wales. It started with a Byra Hadley that I did in 2017 and that work really for the first time canvassed all of the ocean pools in New South Wales. So part of the Byra Hadley requirement is that you select a topic which allows you to have a broader conversation beyond architects about architecture or about the complex nature of the built environment. So I picked ocean pools and I found it was so easy to talk to people about really complex aspects of coastal planning and climate change and resilience design in a really simple way. You know, I think people really turn off when you start talking about that stuff, but when it's their local ocean pool and you say, mate, this is going under and they get it straight away. They understand the implications of that on a really micro level, but on a macro level as well. So I found that ocean pools were just this great vehicle for having much broader conversations with people. What was university like for you in terms of learning how to present your work and do presentations in front of a jury or a, a review panel? Throughout high school, I did debating and, and various things. So I felt comfortable with talking, but I think that the way that they structured 
the course at, at Sydney University also made you realise that there was an emphasis and importance on being able to talk and present and really forced you to figure out how am I going to communicate this idea? You know, I could have the best design in the world, but if I can't demonstrate that to my tutor, then I'm not going to get great marks. What skills did debating give you at school? I think just that sense of sort of thinking about what you're going to say before you say it and thinking about your audience. And that seems like a really simple concept, but the way it occurs in your mind is, is not always the way it's received. And um, I'm very mindful of that and I still grapple with it all the time. What about nerves in terms of debating? Were there <sighs> tricks you did or preparation things you did then? I've noticed that I used to be less nervous about talking and it's increasingly gotten harder. And I feel like sometimes I get up to talk and I just have all of these physical flight responses that like come about and I don't know why that's gotten increasingly harder. What type of responses can you list? Some? Oh like just heart racing just totally pounding and you feel like anxiety in the deep of your chest. It's it's kind of like a self-perpetuating thing like your body has this response and then your mind freaks out and then your body does more and it's just not a great, not a great cycle, but the only thing I've really found to counter that is really knowing your content. I think I've noticed that it's kind of worse when I'm in, you know, like the presentation I did at Design Speaks, which was at Art Gallery in New South Wales. It was a room of the profession. It was hundreds know, of architects, hundreds of architects, the best architects in Australia. And these people know their stuff. These people know my stuff better than me. Like, uh, that's what makes me feel most nervous. Can you tell me about that design symposium talk? I'd love to know how you prepared for that. So the way that I prepare for any big talk that I'm giving is I start by thinking about the themes. So that particular symposium was about sort of the connection between landscape and architecture, which is why ocean pools were interesting to talk about because there's a real blur between sort of what's natural and man-made and how you heighten or frame landscape with architecture. So I script out exactly what I'm going to say in full and it's less that I want to verbatim say that, more that it helps me organise my thoughts and rehearse most of the sentences I want to say even if they don't come out exactly that way. And like I said, it just helps me know my content and take people through a story in a sense, which is really hard as well. So I put so many hours into preparing whenever I have a talk. It generally... Like how many would you think? Oh, I'd probably work on it for six weeks and I'd probably spend 20 hours each week. Oh! So I'm really slow and I'm not a good writer and I'm not a good speaker. And so I put a huge amount of effort into preparing. No, I think that's amazing. I think it's appropriate like for a, a national symposium like that to put effort into what you're going to say and what you're going to tell people. But why do you think that you're not a good speaker? It's that nervousness thing that you were talking about. You know, if I stand up to talk to people off the cuff, I have done that before and I get nervous and I diverge from the topic and I forget where I'm going and I don't make a point and 
It's not like you turn up to everything and all of your knowledge just disappears on you. It's there. It's just, you know, recalling it in a fashion that's coherent and communicating what needs to be said. But yeah, when I say I'm not a good speaker, it's just that I'm not a good off the cuff speaker. But I guess that goes hand in hand. Speaking and writing for me going hand in hand because the process that I do, whether, you know, whether I'd be doing a talk or writing an article, it's the same. Like I said, it, you know, I would spend six weeks and like quite a bit of time every week writing and rewriting. It doesn't, you know, come to me in a coherent manner at all. And yeah, it takes a lot of refinement for me to get to something that I think is okay. And I think as architects, we're not trained in great writing. We're not journalists. We're not from that background. So that's why I feel that is a bit of a challenge. But, you know, it's increasingly becoming more important. You know, if you want to win a tender, if you want to write a policy document, even if you just want to put something on your website, like you've got to be able to write coherently. And yeah, it is a real, real skill. So Nicole, I know you've had a bunch of experience working in other practices. And then you've also had the experience of going out on your own and doing your own thing. Can you talk a bit about the different challenges in communication between those two things? Yeah, so, I mean, working in a firm, as most staff would know, um, if you're not the lead on the project or the director of the company, you probably aren't doing external communication. And that's, you know, that's fair. That's, that's sort of the way that companies are structured and they're like that for a reason. At Zans, we had fantastic comms management by uh, Rosemary Luca, who was a consultant who helped them out. And she was really great in shaping the way those external presentations were done and various other parts of comms. And kindly, she helped me a little bit with my work. Just sort of a comment here and there, like, oh, you should make sure that whenever you make a presentation, there's three ideas. People can't really hold more than that in their head. So have three ideas. Make sure that the hero renders at the start. Don't go through the whole story and wait until the renders are at the end. When I started doing my own work, which started with the Byra Hadley and research that I was doing outside of my full-time job, I had to sort of learn how to start presenting on my own. And one avenue which was a great pathway for talking was presenting my work at conferences or um, little workshops. And so it gave me some experience on how do you talk to a whole bunch of external parties. And I wouldn't have got that experience necessarily as a staff member in a firm, but I had this research, which was like a vehicle for me learning how to do that. And it's often a skill set that you need as you move in, even if you're not going to be a sole practitioner. If you want to stay in a practice and become a more senior person, you have to be able to talk externally with conviction. That's actually something that I heard Hannah Tribe say. She was doing a talk where she said, you know, in communication, the most important thing as architects is that we have conviction and we're compelled by the work that we're doing, which I really loved. I thought that was a really interesting insight that clients thrive off that excitement that you have for a project. Ocean pools are easy to get excited about, but the best deliveries that I've ever had of, of talking or presentation have been where 
there's an excitement about it and and you're really compelled by the work if you you know if you're not compelled by it then how can you expect a client to be and you know part of our work is about getting commissions getting projects we can't just live in a academic space if we're going to be practicing and also there's a lot of prep that I go into when I do a talk but I've realized that you can't leave sort of that passion behind either. You need to not be a robot. You need to talk with love and excitement about the projects that you're gonna to do to bring clients along with you. I think it's really important as designers that we pursue work that is relatable to the broad population. I think the thing that I don't wanna do in communication is talk to other architects because they already hold all of that knowledge. They already understand fully a lot of the concepts that I'm talking about. I want to talk to old mate who has a favourite ocean pool or lives by the ocean and really loves it and may not sort of appreciate that broader framework of planning and governance, which is really dry. And, you know, when you can talk about it on a really simple level, they can really engage in it. And, and what do you want old mate to know? <laughs> I, I want to understand his drivers and what's important to him. Often it's in Australia, we love the coast. It's a world-class coastline and we want to conserve it. I think we understand a lot about what it means to protect our coastline as it is, but we understand less about what it means to adapt with climate change. You know, the coast is going to change. It's undeniable. Our concept of an untouched landscape is false in a lot of senses on the coast. It's always been quite modified, but with climate change and sea level rise, it will be modified even more. How do we protect that beautiful character, that innate intrinsic natural beauty of the coast while adapting? And built structures aren't always to the detriment of nature. When you drove down here today, you drove along Seacliff Bridge, a really important arterial road that connects the coast when you're coming down from Sydney south to Wollongong. And the road steps out into the ocean essentially because the cliff had subsided and they needed to put it far enough away from the cliff to be clear of rockfall. But there's nowhere else in Australia, I don't think, where you have such a spectacular road. It's serpentine, you get these oblique views up and down the coast and, and it's a great example of where Building something doesn't necessarily diminish the character of the landscape, it heightens it. And we've got to be brave and bold sort of to do those sorts of proposals because we're going to be in a position where we can't do nothing any longer or we will certainly lose and diminish the character of the coast. So I want to have that really hard conversation with old mate because I think it's not a hard conversation when you have a bit of the coast in front of you and you can you know, talk about it in really simple terms, like sea level rise is gonna happen, the sand on your beach is gonna go. Do you still wanna be able to use this space? One thing I noticed that you did just then was you described that sea cliff bridge in a way that was really easy to picture. Have you worked on that as a skill? I think I realized the romanticism that Australians have with the coastline. Tim Winton, amazing Australian author, you know, the way he talks about the coast is really beautiful. He talks about it in a really gritty way as well, and I think that's important. But I, when I realised that there's this romanticism that you can tap into and everyone's got a nostalgic memory of the beach, that is super powerful. And I 
I feel critical of it as well because as designers and practitioners we need to take off the rose-coloured glasses and think about things in an evidence-based way but when you're communicating when you're trying to get stakeholders on board you know you need to tap into that if you're going to get them interested in otherwise quite dry concepts. Can you tell me about a presentation experience that that went fantastically like that you're really proud of? I think the Design Speaks one was really great because I was daunted by talking in front of people who really are at the top of the industry. And, and I'm not a landscape architect, so I was worried about treading on toes of people who know so much more about landscape and landscape design in Australia. So that went really well, in part because I prepared a lot for it, but it was a great setting and a great setup. And yeah, I got so much great feedback from it. And I also measure a measure of success is like, does work come out of it? Because at the end of the day, this is why sort of we do some of these talks in part because I'm trying to always generate more work for my own sole practice. So that was really great. I have had a collaboration with Officer Woods in Western Australia, which came as a part of that. And Trent and Jenny have just been great mentors for me on, on the projects that we've collaborated with together. And I would have never reached out to them otherwise. So that was a great connection. And on the other hand, can you tell me about a presentation you did where things did not go to plan or a, an experience that you've really learnt from? Yeah, I can probably talk about a few, but I'll pick one that just went terribly not that long ago. I was doing a presentation to council. It was online, which is always really difficult. You're not in the room, you can't connect with people, you can't read body language. It was a collection of council members and the project I was presenting was politically charged. There was people in opposition to it. There were people who were in favour of it. There was a lot of scrutiny on it. And the reason it went so badly was we were told that our presentation would run for 15 minutes, but at the 10 minute mark, I got cut off and asked to finish. And there was 30% of the presentation left. Really important stuff about how much is this project gonna cost and technically how does it work that I didn't get a chance to talk through. And that was it, I just got cut off and... No reason given? Oh, I think that I, I was told that I had 15 minutes, but... It was incorrect. And you know, anyone who was a detractor of the project or who didn't support it, we didn't really get a chance to convince them of those technical aspects of the, the project. So. That's a difficult one, like what do you do when you just get cut off and you thought you had 15 and you're only taught for 10? Um, really hard. I mean, the only thing I could say was it was a good lesson in like, if that's ever a likelihood, like you really need to get those important things up front. Along with her architecture practice, Nicole is an installation artist who's exhibited in Sculpture by the Sea at Bondi. I wanted to know if she sees a difference between communicating architecture and communicating art. I think what art has really taught me is the medium is the message. I always want as, as an architect for the work to stand up and speak for itself. And that's because I don't feel strong about speaking or written communication. I feel like drawing and, and building, that's my medium. And so I, wanna, I want that to do all the talking for me. But I think that's a mistake and as architects, we often make that mistake. We need to be able to talk in written format to get the message across. But I, I do feel strongly that, you know, we should 
be imbuing all of our work with the message. So, you know, in the Ocean Pools research that I did, I put together a report at the end and some of the things which I did to make the medium the message was in every aerial photo, I tried to make the water on the right. And that's because I'm in New South Wales and the coast is always on the right hand side if you're looking north. And, you know, all of my graphic layouts always had a really strong datum in the middle of the page or, or just above the middle of the page. And that was about, you know, the horizon, which is a massive part of the ocean and, and the tide is everything in ocean pools. So I, I think as architects, we should be borrowing from art. And going back to my original thought was, you know, it's got to be beautiful for people to engage with it. It's got to be seductive. Otherwise, you know, there's just so much content coming at people, they just turn off. Alex Zahns has a really fantastic concept of sustainability where we build and it's this massive carbon footprint. So to make that worthwhile, you've got to make something that people will love and people will fall in love with so that they take care of it. And ocean pools are a great example of that. People have taken care of them for a hundred years because they love them. You know, the walls are falling down and they're not necessarily robust structures, but people have kept them in use just because they love using them. I guess you could look at a heritage building in that way. They've become these really significant, iconic parts of a community. So the community invests in keeping them alive and they live for 100, 200 years. I mean, in terms of art and architecture, yeah, I think that you've, you've got to make people fall in love with what you're doing. Again, you've got to make it compelling. You've got to make it exciting. Um, and that's kind of privilege. Like as architects, sometimes we do work which is not exciting and not compelling. Sometimes we are delivering projects which are really boring. And so, yeah, I, I acknowledge that you can't do that on every project, but I think you should be looking for it um, if you can. I'm always interested in the specific communication challenges that women face in our industry. So I asked Nicole what her experience has been. I find it most challenging on site, like construction site can be a typically male dominated space. And you that is when you really have to know your staff. And, you know, I work with NBC and the three directors, Maladin, Ben and Chi, um, have taught me so much on that, Chi in particular is such a fantastic role model for being a great operator but being a powerhouse and it, it garners respect and I think that you really as a woman need to be able to do that to have presence and, and hold your own on a site but I think at the end of the day whether you're a, a female or a male sort of to be able to know your content is just about being a good practitioner really and a good architect or a landscape architect. I just had my own, my first baby. So I've been thinking more about how that interfaces with being an architect. Often our projects are so intense and short timeframes that generally I think the industry feels that you need to have that one point of contact and project lead there and available five days, six days a week. What I learnt at Zahn's and continue to practice is that that's not the case when I was coming through Zahn's as a junior, I had all these fantastic women around me who were lead architects, um, who went to have families and came back in part-time capacity. And they were some of the best experiences I've had in my career and sort of professionally because we had this great 
symbiosis really because I was there full time but I was junior and wanting to learn more but to be thrown in the deep end of leading a project would have left me unsupported and I would have been sort of set to set up to fail but when I had a senior project lead a senior architect working with me three days a week it meant I only had to fly solo for a couple of days and it was a really good relationship for them because they felt like the project was being serviced while they were away. And it takes a really close relationship to make that work well, but it, it did work well for us. And it showed me that the construction industry totally has capacity to job share and that it can have this great impact of bringing younger staff through and making it more flexible for senior staff. Do you have any advice sort of communication wise for recent architecture, landscape architecture, design grads coming into the profession? Anything you would tell them about communication that you know? Yeah, three messages up front and really think about what those messages are and your audience and, you know, what does a successful outcome of this talk look like? Try and be really pointed whenever you're doing that. Again, medium is the message. Try and get your message coming across multiple aspects of what you're doing, in the graphics, in the way you talk, in the words you use. Try to sew it through more than just the utilitarian things that you're saying and really prepare. Jerry Seinfeld did a really fantastic podcast where he talked about tonnage. He prepared so much for all of his comedy and that idea of 10,000 hours like just get as much time into something as you can. Doing Byra Hadley's is really great because it's something that you do outside of the studio and practice and you have to do it yourself so it really exposes you to much more than you would get working in a firm. I um, arranged a workshop at Wiley's Bars in December last year and the point of that workshop was to bring, just bring together everyone who's working on ocean pools. It was actually just me thinking like a kid in a candy store, who are all the people who I want to talk to? Let's bring them all in a room and I'll just talk to them. So it was kind of, you know, I felt like Augustus Gloop on um, Willy Wonka. Just give me all of the sugary candy that I can get. <laughs> um, and we had a day of speakers and it was all different types of topics, but also all different disciplines. So we had one person talking about living seawalls, which is, you know, the um, it's like a concrete component that you bolt onto a wall and it regenerates some of the intertidal habitat. We had someone talking about heritage, someone talking about access, someone talking about concrete for ocean pools, which is actually a really technical and specific knowledge field. How many people would there have been? We got about 50 people. Some people had to come and go, but it was so great because like most of these people interested in ocean pools, they actually love swimming in them. So at lunchtime, there was like a whole host of people who were like, we're going for a swim at lunch. And I bought from Wiley's a whole lot of the Wiley's caps. So I gave them out for free. And Ocean Pools uh, is a publication by Chris Chen and Marie Louise McDermott. And that had come out just recently. So we did a, you know, Lucky Door prize. We gave away some of those books. I gave away some of my books. And at the end of that day, I had so many people come to me and say the diversity of people who talked to one another was fantastic. And I've had multiple projects that came out of that, you know, so it was really beneficial for me. But it, it's also been this like super connector of networking. I've people call me up now and say like, 
oh, we're doing this tender or this project, who do you recommend for it? And, you know, it helps me keep my finger on the pulse of tenders and projects that I want to sort of go for as well. When I was starting on all of this research, which is almost 10 years ago now for Ocean Pools, I never really thought it would go anywhere. And just in the last couple of years, it's manifested into actual projects. There's three proper proposals for new ocean pools in Australia, and I've been lucky to work on all of them. There's a big revival driven by Sydney Water to increase harbour swimming, coastal planning and design, the marine estate management, which is a department of the state government, have been rewriting the coastal design guidelines. So I never thought it would go anywhere and, and fantastically it's turned into a whole lot of really interesting work that I'm really engaged and passionate about. So I'd love for that to keep going. I think to build an ocean pool in contemporary practice, you just it seems like something that can never be done. So to have one of those projects come into fruition, I think would be a, a career highlight. But just more broadly, I, I think coastal planning is a really interesting field and there's a lot of meat in there and climate change will only make it more and more poignant. So I hope to keep working on that. Thank you so much for your time, Nicole. That has just been a real pleasure meeting you and chatting to you. Pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. You've been listening to a podcast of Dig Beneath Design, here to help you in your daily design communication challenges. So I'd love to hear from you, what you think of the show, what you want to know. Tell me the design communicators that inspire you. Or maybe there's a great story from your own experience that can help your fellow designers. Find more interviews at sndc.com.au forward slash Dig Beneath Design. Dig Beneath Design is brought to you by SNDC. Original music by Adam Jones. Sound and photography by James Norton. Engineered and mastered at Sound Kitchen Sydney. I'm Sunea Norton. Join me next time for more good dirt on Dig Beneath Design. <laughs>